Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy. And we can say amen to that song. The Lord gives us much work to do, and he joins us into his work. 1 Timothy is uh, familiar to us at South Shore. It's been a couple years, but we've studied this in depth as a church, verse by verse, instruction by instruction. And in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul lays out for Timothy 15 instructions and then more instructions in the book of 2 Timothy, which we studied as well. And we were endeavoring to understand what is it that we have to do as a church if we're going to be faithful to the call that Christ has for us. And he gives us this picture, a household. You are all familiar with households, I think. All of us have an experience in a household. A household has certain rules that have to be followed. There's a certain hierarchy that's designed to uh, make for the flourishing of the household. There are fathers and mothers, and they say, this is how things have to operate if this family is going to operate in a way that would be pleasing to God. And their children and children have to submit to their authorities, which are their parents in the household. And we all have our own experiences. We have experiences where this hasn't gone particularly well, or things have gone very well, and we bring all of those experiences with us into every household. When a new couple comes together and they're married, they bring the experiences that they've had in their households into a new household. And Paul has to say to here, to Timothy, and to us at South Shore, you are a household. You're a household for God. You're his household. You belong to him. So open to 1 Timothy, and uh, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as we read, would you please stand? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Christ says this to his church at South Shore through Paul. Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that South Shore would be a household for you, of you, for your glory, and according to your instructions. Lord, lay out for us clearly how we are to behave in the household of God. Would we be pleasing in your sight as we operate by the help of the Spirit, whom you, the Son, have sent for our help to accomplish your purposes here at South Shore. Make this very clear for us. Help us to implement these things day by day as you already have. Lord, help us. We pray in the name of Christ for his sake. Amen. You may take a seat. So we've all had household experiences, and we know what a household is, right? But Timothy exists in a certain household context in Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus right now, and Paul is writing to him to help him to understand how he's supposed to operate within a household, i.e. the church, 
in Ephesus. So we have to understand what's the Ephesian context that Paul's writing about and that Timothy's operating within. And it's a very Greco-Roman-influenced household structure. So we have to understand there's certain differences between how we think of a household here in Canada in 2019 and how Timothy was thinking of a household and how Paul was thinking of a household. A household was a certain structure with a definite authority figure, which was the father, the husband, and he had the final say in all things. It wasn't an anarchy. There was a hierarchy, and he said, these are the rules, and these are the things that you have to do if you're going to be in my household. There was a wife, a mother, there were children, and the father, or the head of the household, could delegate some of his authority to stewards that would then carry out his will, but they would have the authority of the head. And the stewards could delegate authority to other servants. So there was an authority structure, but it all was retained at the head of the household, the father, the husband, and he delegated authority down through the household, and everyone needed to follow command. This is the structure within which Timothy's thinking of a household. So when Paul says, you're the household of God in Ephesus, this is what he's thinking of. So we can't bring in our preconceived notions of what a household is like. We have a very different way of thinking about that in, in Canada sometimes. So that's the context with which he's communicating that you're a household. Now, in a household, there are certain rules. And this is the simple message of First Timothy. Timothy, you're supposed to design this body of believers. That's what we referred to last week. The church is a body. You're supposed to design this as a household in Ephesus. You're supposed to operate as a household. Think of a household as you determine how the church is going to operate. And I'll give you instructions on how that works out. So he gives us here 15 instructions, and that's our task this morning. We're going to walk through really quickly 15 different instructions that we've already discovered back in 2017, and these are the ways in which we have to operate, we have to implement these things if we are going to operate according to the will of God at South Shore. So these are the 15 instructions. Before I get into it, let me just review. As Adam said, we took a break from Romans. We were discussing what's the mission of the church. We're to go into all the world, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to obey all that Christ has instructed us to obey. And then we looked at, well, if that's the mission of the church, what is the church? Who is the church? And we said last week the church is a body. It functions like a body, many members. This week, very distinct. We have to think not as a body, but as a household unit. Think household. So these are the 15 instructions that Paul clearly lays out to Timothy that we have to implement here at South Shore if we are to be all that God desires us to be. Before we continue, let's pray. Lord, please help us to implement these things at South Shore. Make extremely clear to us what we are to do. Help me, as we have 15 things ahead of us to explain and to implement, help us to work through these things with clarity, 
And would you touch our heart to understand all of the depth of each of your instructions for us? Amen. The first instruction that Timothy lays out, or that Paul lays out for Timothy, is really foundational for all of them. It's this, teach the truth. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What's different doctrine? It's anything that doesn't accord with the gospel. It's anything that doesn't accord with a right understanding of salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Anything else that's taught has to be understood as different doctrine, and it's to be rejected. Reject, uh, teach the truth. And that's what's happening here. In some ways, people in this church were distorting the truth. They were teaching different doctrine, things that didn't line up with what Paul had communicated to them. And he said, you have to address that and you have to teach the truth. And why? What's the goal in teaching the truth? Are we to beat at people over the head with our Bibles into submission because we desire that truth would be made known for the sake of truth? We need truth to be made known for the sake of love. That's what Paul says. The aim of our charge is love. Is it loving to teach false doctrine? No, because false doctrine, if you get a wrong understanding of salvation, it doesn't save. Right doctrine, on the other hand, with the help of the Holy Spirit, saves people. So teach the truth. That's the foundational instruction that Paul has for Timothy, and everything else flows out of this instruction. So, flowing out of this foundational instruction that you must teach the truth, the second instruction is pray for all people. This is really interesting because right before that he said that teaching the truth is going to be like waging warfare, Timothy. And how are you to wage warfare within the context of the church? The household, it's going to look like this. Pray for people. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. If you are going to teach the truth, you're going to wage good warfare, you have to be praying for all people, for kings, for all who are in authority. And why does he say this? He gives two reasons that we've pulled out of this text already. The first is so that we might flourish as a church, that the leaders would institute laws, they're in authority, and they have certain restrictions that they can put in place, like we discovered in Dubai, and this can restrict or this can enable the flourishing of the church. We want to pray to that end. Also, we want to pray evangelistically for our leaders. We want to pray that they would be saved for their well-being, spiritually. So we pray for our leaders in an evangelistic sense and also for the sake of the church. The application for us is one thing we've, we've done is we, we pray in our service. We set aside a time where we pray for all people, whether it's leaders, whether it's people that are in other nations, whether it's other organizations or churches. We pray for all people. That's God's will for us. That's one way that we've implemented this. Another way is that rather than rising in resistance against our government, 
that's very common in our day. We're to submit ourselves to our government. Instead of rising against them, we're to submit ourselves in prayer, pray for them. So pray, pray for all people. That's the second instruction. And Paul continues to put some meat on the bones here, flowing out of the instruction to pray for all people. He applies it more specifically to men. So the third instruction is, men pray without anger or quarreling. That's chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And why does he say, men, pray? Well, here's a couple things. There's a propensity that Paul sees for men generally to be prone toward anger, toward quarreling, toward fighting about the wrong things. So he counters that with men, rather than fighting, rather than quarreling, pray with each other. Doesn't your own experience say that this is a right thing to do? You have a disagreement with someone, you tend to fight with someone, you pray with them, you pray for them. And God desires to work out healing and unity in his household through prayer with each other. A second thing is men simply have a particular calling to lead the church in prayer. The men are to lead in prayer to make sure that the church is a praying church. So the men are to pray without anger, without quarreling. The point here is that the anger of the men was inhibiting the prayer of the church. Put away anger, don't inhibit prayer, encourage prayer, lifting holy hands in submission to God. So if the men are supposed to work out this prayer by following that instruction. How does Paul relate this instruction, instruction number two, to pray for all people to the women? This is how he relates it to the women. Instruction number four for the church at South Shore is found in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. And it's this, women, adorn yourselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. He says, likewise also, the women are to do this. In the same way that the men pray for all people by following that previous instruction, the women encourage the prayer for all people by following this instruction. And he, he says plainly this, the women here are dis- dressing up with all sorts of fancy clothes and it is inhibiting the prayer life of the church. Now Paul doesn't say here that women aren't allowed to wear gold or aren't allowed to wear pearls. He says there's to dress themselves in respectable apparel. That leaves room for dressing in a feminine way, in an attractive way, but it's in a way that's mindful of encouraging prayer. How can you dress women so that you will encourage prayer in the household of God? That's application of instruction number four. One thing also that he says is don't think that's the depth of the instruction. That if you are to adorn yourself outwardly, that you're following this instruction. Be more mindful of that, of this, than that. That you adorn yourself inwardly with modesty on the inside and self-control on the inside because Modesty or immodesty on the outside is going to be an expression of what's been internalized. It'll flow out. 
So be modest and be self-controlled, and here's one way that you can do that to encourage the prayer in the church. Be modest outwardly and be modest and self-controlled in all your conduct. That's Paul's instruction for the women to encourage prayer in the church. Now this is how he's working out instructions of submission. You see the themes of submission? We're to submit ourselves to the will of God by praying for our leaders. And then men are supposed to submit themselves to God by praying together. And women are supposed to submit themselves to all people in the church by adorning themselves with modesty and with self-control. There's a theme here of submission. And then Paul continues with instruction number five. Here's how I'm going to specifically work out authority and submission in the church. I'm going to give you a couple roles that you have to implement if you're going to be all you need to be. So instruction number five, men are to teach and to exercise authority in the church. He states this instruction in a negative. So in these next verses, which are verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, he says this to women, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And how can Paul say that in 2019 in Canada, that a woman isn't allowed to teach or to exercise authority over a man? In fact, she's to remain quiet in the churches. How does that fit with our cultural understanding of what a woman is. Aren't men and women allowed to do all of the same things? Well, Paul here, he doesn't make an argument out of the culture because cultures change. He makes an argument from the pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-curse creation, design by God. He says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's the argument. Adam was formed first and then Eve. God gave Adam instructions to eat of these trees, but not to eat of this tree, and Adam was to pass that on to Eve. This was God's design before the fall. That's what we have to remember. This wasn't after the curse. This wasn't according to some cultural design. This is a design of God before the fall, that God created men, and he gave them instruction and trusted them with teaching women. That was right from the beginning. And he continues that design into the church. So the instruction then is men are to teach and to exercise authority in the church. It clearly doesn't say anything about value between men and women. It says everything about function, about role in the church. So, Continuing that, now that he's established that men are to teach and to exercise authority in the church, he lays out how this is to happen. First, with overseers. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is instruction number 6. Appoint qualified overseers. Paul gives us two roles. The first one is what we call elders here at South Shore. Most, most churches call them elders. Here it's translated overseers. In the context that Timothy was in, we've already established, it's, it's much easier to understand a hierarchy. For us, that's more difficult. So we have to pray for the Holy Spirit's help to understand these things 
and to conform our minds to God's, un- God's understanding of how the church is to operate. So as there was a head of the household in the Greco-Roman world in which Timothy operated, there's a head of God's household. And who's the head? God's the head, and God has given all authority to Christ in his church. God has established Christ as the head of his church. Then, Christ has established overseers with delegated authority from the head, from God himself. The only authority that the overseers in God's household have is the authority that's given to them by Christ, their head, in the scriptures. Anything else is of their own doing. So, this is the role. He gives uh, a list of qualifications they have to operate by. It's a very high calling. And two of the notable things are they're supposed to be able to teach and they're supposed to also be able to keep their children submissive, i.e., they have to be good at exercising authority properly, well, lovingly. So to teach and to exercise authority. And that's what was established in the previous instruction. They have to be able to teach and exercise authority, men in the church. So that's the role of the elder. Now, even though these men have certain weaknesses and might continue in sinful tendencies, they are, by God's will, overseers over your souls, shepherds for your sake, and they will give an account to Christ Jesus on how they have operated and how they've carried out that task. Your home isn't a democracy, neither is God's. And this is the structure that he puts in place. So, if elders are to carry out the authority that Christ entrusts to them, how are they to work out that authority practically within the church? And God does give them a role to implement in the church to to carry out this delegated authority. And here at South Shore, we call those stewards. That's the next instruction. So, instruction number seven, appoint qualified servants. That's chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Appoint qualified servants. And here he says, deacons. In the, if you're reading the ESV, it says deacons. The Greek is diakonos. And that's important because that just shows us that that's where the word comes from. It comes from the word deacons. Most of the time, this is translated as a servant. It's simply a servant. A deacon in the New Testament is someone that's been given a task. And authority has said, here's your task, you're to steward this well. They're not going with authority to other people, but they're going with the authority that's given from above them to carry out a particular task. And they will have to give an account for how they, they, they carry out that task. A couple notable things from this list of qualifications that distinguishes deacons from overseers, or at Selshire we'd say distinguishes stewards from elders, is Paul says this, they're believers, but they're not teachers. They're helpers, they're not leaders. And they're faithful managers, but they're not governors. Now, a big question that we won't get into in depth is, is this open to men only or to men and women? And we laid out very clearly why we are convinced at South Shore why Paul has in mind 
an office here that is for men and for women. And fundamentally, it's a role of stewardship. It's a role of servanthood. All of these qualifications can be applied to men and they can be applied to women. And we've said at South Shore, that's how we're going to best implement this instruction. We're going to appoint qualified servants, i.e. stewards, who are men and who are women, who will carry out their functions in particular ministries from the delegated authority from Christ to the elders to the stewards. Okay, so that's instruction number seven. Appoint qualified servants. Then we get to the passage that we just read at the beginning. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he reminds Timothy why he's writing this. And this is the summation of the whole letter. I am writing this to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We're a household. Timothy, you ought to think of yourselves as a household of God, and you ought to implement these instructions. That's why I'm writing to you. So he reminds him of that. But notice what it says right at the end there. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And then what follows is the next instruction. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Basically, the truth is really important. The truth, God's real truth, the unchanging truth, is important in the household of God. How do we see that? The next instruction. Instruction eight. It's reject false teaching. That's chapter four, verses one through five. The thing we have to see here is that Paul communicates to Timothy that false teaching isn't to be a surprise. And we need to realize the same thing here. Are we immune to false teaching? We're not immune to false teaching, and false teaching will creep into the church. It will creep into every single church, and we have to be aware of it. We have to be able to identify it and to compare it against what we know from the scriptures and reject what needs to be rejected and accept what needs to be accepted. So Paul gives this brief structure. He says, false teaching will come. Here's an example of false teaching. Asceticism had grown into... uh, this church, or perhaps he was giving it as an example, and he says, compare that with the teaching that I've given to you, Timothy, and if it doesn't line up, you have to reject it, and you have to deal with it as appropriate, including dealing with the people that are promulgating this false teaching. That's what we have to understand at South Shore. We have to realize that false teaching will come, we have to be able to identify it, and we have to be able to deal with it biblically, Now, who's to take this responsibility of addressing false teaching, of dealing with false teaching? Well, primarily, it's the elders. The elders are supposed to teach and to exercise authority. And primarily, practically, it's going to be the lead pastor in a church, the one who has special attention to teaching and to preaching. And that's where Paul goes next. Instruction number nine. This is the job description from God to the local pastor. Give this job description to your pastor. Chapter 4, verse 6 through 5, verse 2. 
and at the time, Adam mentioned while we were going through this, this would save a lot of search committees, a lot of time and headache if they understood what's God's design for the pastor? What's his job description that he gives to his church to identify what a good pastor is and what things he should be doing and what things he should have as character traits? Here are two main things to pull out. The pastor is to teach. He's to teach the word of God. This is fundamental to his role as the pastor, as an elder that's devoted himself to teaching and preaching. He says this, Put these things before the brothers, and you'll be a good servant. Command and teach these things. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching, to exhortation. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You see all these things? Teach, teach, watch the teaching, devote yourself to teaching, to exhortation. And we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We need to hear. We need someone that will teach us the scriptures. So that's the first thing that the pastor has to do. The second thing is he has to live out God's word. The point here is he has to practice the word of God and then he has to preach what he practices Now, he won't practice it perfectly, but he is to aim for godliness, to aim for a life that's in accordance with the scriptures. And why does he do all this? Why does he teach? Why does he practice godliness? The point is so that through his teaching faithfully of the word of God and to his putting into practice godliness in his own life and exampling it for others, he would, by the grace of God, see as many sheep as possible by God's grace enter into pasture in the new heavens, in the new earth. That's the great desire of a pastor. That's the great desire of our pastor. And we want to equip him to carry out his job description because this is God's will for his church. That's instruction number nine. Instruction ten. Here Paul makes a shift in the next three instructions to a a theme of honoring people. And this is the first one. Instruction 10, honor those who cannot help themselves. That's chapter 5, verse 3 through 16. Honor those who cannot help themselves. We need to help those at South Shore who cannot help themselves. Now, this is a long section here. And if you read through it, you'll realize that Paul talks about widows over and over again. So are we saying that Paul's not talking about widows and he's just talking about all people? This includes widows, certainly. He's talking about taking care of widows. But what we pulled out in detail a number of years ago was that Paul has a principle that he's laying down here for his church. And the principle is this. There are those in your church who cannot take care of themselves. They don't have the financial means, the physical means, whatever it is to take care of themselves. You have to take care of these people. That's the principle that he lays down. And he makes that clear because he makes it a very exclusive group that gets care from the church. These these women, they have to be all alone. They have to hope in God, faithful in prayer, not self-indulgent. They have to be 60-plus, demonstrated faithful character to their husbands, a reputation for good works, and make clear, he says, they can't be young widows. 
So he makes very clear that these people have to be people that cannot take care of themselves. You don't just hand out money from the church to just anyone just because they're in the category of widow. And the same principle applies to us. Just because they're in a particular category does not mean we give handouts from the church, but if someone is truly all alone, they don't have the means to take care of themselves. The church has the responsibility to take care of them. And if we don't, we dishonor the name of Christ. That's the instruction to us. Instruction number 10. Honor those who cannot help themselves. Now, continuing this theme of honoring, again, instruction number 11. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So honor those who can't help themselves. Double honor the elders who rule well. These are the two things we said that double honor means. Double honor is honoring them through monetary provision and honoring with appropriate respect due to the office. Look at chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Why? Why especially to those elders who rule well and labor in preaching and teaching? The question I'd have for us is, what do you want the quality of the teaching to be at South Shore? Faithful and high-quality teaching is going to take much devotion. It's going to take much care and time by that person who's teaching. And primarily at South Shore, that's our pastor. It takes him full-time job to look at the scriptures, understand what they say, and to bring it to us faithfully week by week. And if he's to do that, he can't be devoting all of his time to employment elsewhere to take care of his family. So the church has a responsibility to pay for him so that he can devote himself not to all of the other affairs of this world, but primarily to the office of teaching and preaching. Because if these things don't take place in our church, if we don't have faithful teaching, then the whole structure will fall apart because we are built with the truth of God. The second thing that we said, not only monetary provision, but also appropriate respect. And this plays out in many ways. It plays out in how we bring accusations of sin before an elder. It also plays out with how we appoint elders. And all of it is to be done with appropriate respect for the office. Not hastily, but carefully, methodically, but also not with a mind that you are going to identify right now every little wrong in a person. So, treat the office with respect, with honor, and you do that in a multitude of ways, not only monetarily, but do that also with great respect for the office. These people are men who have been put in place by God and they carry with them the charge of Christ. So honor those who can't help themselves. Double honor elders who rule well. 
Now, instruction number 12. Workers are to regard their employers as worthy of all honor. And it's simply this. Honor your master in every way you can. And if your master is a believer, honor him all the more. And for us, that's an employee-employer relationship. So if you are an employee, you are to work as if you're working unto Christ because you are working for Christ. And if your master, i.e. your employer, is a believer, you're to work all the more heartily because that person is actually a part of your household. So when you work well, you don't just get a paycheck, you're also storing up for yourself a paycheck in heaven where moth and rust doesn't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Workers are to regard their employers as worthy of all honor. Now we have three final instructions for the church. Instruction number 13, beware of conceited, ignorant, oppositional, and quarrelsome people in the church. Think of this instruction as a disease in the body. If there's a disease in the body, you have to properly identify it, you have to make the right diagnosis, and you have to treat it properly and as efficiently as possible before it affects the whole body of the person and before it affects all the people in the household. And he gives many ways of doing this, identifying them by their teaching. And if you can't identify them by their teaching and they say all the right things, identify them by the way that they live. Quarrelsomeness, conceitedness, these things. And if you can't identify them that way, identify them by the symptoms that they're forming in other people. And after all of that, be mindful that there are certain people in the church that are more inclined to catching this disease of sin sickness in the church. And those people are the unsaved, the unlearned, and those who think they can gain through godliness. So there's a sin sickness that can creep into the church. And you have to be able, in the household of God, for the good of each individual and for the good of the whole household, to identify and to treat it before it spreads to all people. That's the instruction number 13. Number 14 flows out of this. Paul said at the end of that passage that there are people in the church that want to gain through godliness. We don't know all of exactly what that means, but the point is that they're doing it wrong. They're trying to gain wrongfully through godliness. And Paul says here, instruction number 14, set your hopes on God, not on riches. Set your hopes on God, not on riches. They're two separate sections, but we'll treat them together. Paul throws this instruction in here as a thought that flows out of these people that are trying to gain through godliness. And he doesn't want to say that there's no gain in godliness. So he sort of corrects what he said or corrects what you might think he said by saying, well, actually, it's not wrong to want gain through godliness because there is gain 
in godliness if it's coupled with contentment. Now the point here is that godliness isn't a means to a greater gain. Godliness itself is the gain. Do you practice outward godliness for money or for reputation or for friends or to ease your guilty conscience? There's no gain in these things. There's only gain in godliness if you have contentment, knowing that your godliness simply honors Christ. That's great gain. Ultimately, everyone's heart needs to be set in the right place. Not a hope in riches or on gain wrongly from godliness, but a hope on God. Rather than being rich in money, seek riches in good works. Rather than riches in working out godliness wrongly, gain for yourself riches that can be enjoyed now through good works. That's instruction number 14. Set your hopes on God, not on riches. And the final instruction that Paul lays out for Timothy, for us here at South Shore, is instruction number 15. Fight the good fight of the faith. That's chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. These are Paul's closing thoughts to Timothy, his child of the faith. And you can hear the, the words of a spiritual father passing on to his children. His child Timothy, in the faith, his final encouragement, his final exhortation to keep pressing onward, to keep implementing all of the things that he's been instructed to do. Listen to these things in, uh, in, in these final words. I'll just pick out a few. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Fight the good fight of the faith. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. For Christ Jesus himself is appearing very soon. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. These are his words here for us at South Shore. Instruction number 15 is fight the good fight of the faith. It'll be a fight sometimes. And we have to be ready to stand up for what we believe in, in all love, in all peace, in all harmony, fighting the good fight within the household of God. God's pleased by this. He says, fight knowing that Christ is watching. Fight even if it means that you suffer like Christ. Fight for holiness and for obedience. Fight like Christ is coming back soon because he is. Fight for these instructions and fight for the gospel. Fight, 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 fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Living in a household is often a good fight. It's a fight for love. It's a fight for selflessness. It's a fight for peace. And this and every other instruction in 1 Timothy and in the Bible is worth fighting for within the household of God. In God's perfect wisdom and pleasure, this is how he forms and keeps a household for his name, for his honor. 
If we give honor to the helpless, double honor to the elders, all honor to our masters, how much honor does God get with a hundred people living for his honor by following his instructions for his household? That's our aim. There are 15 instructions that Paul's laid out for Timothy for us to implement and for every church everywhere to implement post-haste. This is God's will for the church. It's not always easy. It's not always enjoyable to be a part of any household. It has its joys. It has its great joys. It has its hard times, its difficulties. And it's the same here in the church. As we live out these 15 instructions, there will be difficulties, there will be challenges, but there will be great joys, and there will be great joy in the day to come when we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. South Shore, love and cherish these instructions. If you put these things into practice, you'll do good for your soul, and you'll do good for the souls of all people in our household. And finally, the great reassurance we have, because this is a high calling, is that we have a helper given to us. The helper is actually Christ himself by the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to help us. That chorus we sang just before, it says, Thank you, God, my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit to help us here at South Shore till the work on earth is done. He gives us his Spirit, and by his Spirit, we can carry out his will here at South Shore. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you, for you are the head of your household, and you've given us your will to follow. You haven't left us up to our own devices. You haven't left us with a lot of gray areas. You've given us timely, perfect instructions for us to implement here at South Shore. Lord, help us to obey your commands. Help us to form all of our practice here at South Shore in a way that would be pleasing to you. And help us, O Holy Spirit, to obey your commands. We want with the elders, with the pastor, to be able to see all the people here at South Shore by the power of your Spirit enter into pasture in the new heavens and the new earth. O God, do this for your great glory, our pleasure. Amen.